I want to talk today about the contrast between myths that are widely believed by the public at large and what I regard as a reality which typically contradicts those myths. the first episode of okay let me tell you why you're wrong of 2018 as always i'm dave yost before we get into our topic today i'd like to start off with a few show notes in the spirit of new year's resolutions i'd like to lay out a slightly new episode schedule uh, due to my own personal busyness and scheduling conflicts for guests episode releases got a little spotty throughout the latter part of the last year, so to make up for that, I'm going to be bringing you a new episode weekly uh, in this year. With uh, the more rapid schedule, you'll probably be getting more episodes that are just me talking about a topic, but I will still be pursuing great guests, especially on topics that I don't personally have a lot of knowledge on. Uh, Additionally, I'll be starting a series next week where we go through Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Basically, every other week, I'll be going through a chapter of The Wealth of Nations and giving you the, you know, the CliffsNotes version of it, along with some analysis of how the ideas Smith put forward apply to economics today. Uh, To me, works on a couple levels. One, uh, gives me an excuse to reread uh, The Wealth of Nations, which is no mean feat, because that book is a thousand pages long. Uh, so having this podcast to, to motivate me to keep reading is, a, is, is perfect. And two, it's a book that most people have never read, and it often seems that, with the exception of economics professors, Uh, The more someone claims to quote Smith, the less likely it is that they've ever read The Wealth of Nations. So, hopefully it'll be pretty instructive for you all out there, too. 
Uh, so I'll be alternating each week from a general topic in economics to a chapter from Wealth of Nations, but this week is a topic week, and I thought I'd pick one that has been on all our minds the past few weeks, and that is the economics of gift-giving. For many of us, the holiday season has just come to an end, and most are simultaneously saddened and relieved. So, now's a pretty good time to look back and take stock of the social convention that we all just engaged in during the month of December. Uh, to those of you out there who didn't, uh, who don't celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or any other gift-giving occasion last month, well, this still applies to you because we all give gifts for one reason or another at one time or another, and it's a practice that the the details of it are are often baffling to economists because many of the norms of gift giving are massively inefficient from the perspective of economic rationality. Now, you may be saying, why would you try to apply economics to gift giving? Gifts are all about altruism and selfless giving and exist outside of economic theory. Well, you say that, but gift giving is a social interaction that does involve an exchange of items that have values, both monetary and symbolic, so it falls right into the purview of economics. <clears throat> What's odd about it is that the, the standard rules of efficiency that we would apply to any other social or business interaction don't apply to gift giving, except when they do. Uh, and in some cases, but in some cases, uh, the efficient method of gift giving would actually be insulting to any of us. So, don't worry. Uh, looking at gift giving through the lens of economics isn't meant to diminish the genuine nature of gifts. We're not trying to say that all the thought and love that you put into your Christmas gifts this year is somehow false. This is one of those topics that some economists focus on, not in an effort to push you into being more efficient and, and soulless in your gift giving, but, but rather simply just to revel in the exception to the rule that it is and wonder why these exceptions might exist in society. So economic analysis of gift giving isn't calling Christmas a humbug or taking the side of Ebenezer Scrooge, but rather trying to figure out why we all want to be like Bob Cratchit, or at least the nephew. I guess Bob Cratchit was, was pretty destitute. Uh, that being said, what is so weird about gift giving? Well, for this episode, I'm, I'm going to be using the ideas put forward in a paper written by Colin Kammerer, uh, called Gifts as Economic Signals and Social Symbols. It's a catchy title. Uh, this paper does a great job of laying out key concepts about gift-giving that baffle economic thinking. Really, when you get down to it, what economists bump into when it comes to gift-giving isn't that we give each other gifts. That actually makes perfect sense in the realm of economics, but... Rather, the selection of gifts that we find to be socially acceptable. First of all, let's figure out what a gift is, at least in economic terms. 
So, definitions and explanations for gifts tend to vary across different social sciences. Uh, sciences. Uh, sociologists tend to look at gifts as symbols. Uh, mainly, a, a gift is valuable because it serves as a way to symbolically express your feelings about the nature of a relationship. Uh, the act of giving a gift can be symbolic, or the gift itself can be symbolic to the person it's given to. Uh, basically, it's a way to convey meaning to someone through an action rather than through words. Economists pick up on that idea and say, yeah, but let's adjust it to something closer to what we're used to dealing with. To an economist, a gift is symbolic, but that's its nature, not its function. Its function is as a signal. A signal falls more into familiar territory for economists because signals are a key element to new relationships, whether it's between people or organizations. The type of gift giving that, that best slots into this model is, is gift giving between suitors. Um, to use a kind of stodgy, old-timey term, and the person that they're courting. Now, there's a version of this analogy that's that's based on courting methods from the, I don't know, antebellum period, and will really make me feel like I should be fanning myself and talking about having the vapors. Colin Kammerer makes some brilliant points in his paper, but when he talks about this kind of stuff, it's pretty apparent he hasn't been in the dating scene since sock hops were a thing so i'm going to try to modernize it a bit especially to avoid the the point at which the suitor and the father of the girl negotiate a dowry that involves heads of cattle and tracks of land in our more modern version we'll make the suitor a guy mainly thanks to uh, our discussion about such things in the uh, our conversation from the gender gap episode and he's pursuing a girl. If, uh, if this example is too hetero cisgendered plain for you, feel free to choose your own adventure on the pronouns because the, the principles are pretty much the same across the board. So our guy is trying to date our girl and wants to convey how serious he is about the future, you know, about getting into a future relationship. Now, we're going to assume that our girl has other guys interested in dating her, so one potential way for our guy to distinguish himself from the others would be to give her a gift. After all, some of those other guys probably aren't interested in a serious relationship, and are just looking, you know, to set up something casual. Assuming that our girl isn't interested in a casual relationship, that she wants a serious relationship, the gift serves as a signal of seriousness. Man, that's a great alliteration. Uh, because someone looking for a casual relationship probably isn't going to make the financial investment for a similar gift. The gifts and, and, and what they are will help our girl determine who is serious and who isn't. This is a bigger deal than it might seem because in this scenario... Our girl is faced with a, a dilemma that she can't really ask each guy directly what their intentions are because, well, there's a chance that 
some of those looking for a casual relationship will just, well, lie. Because saying, well, of course I want a serious relationship, costs them nothing. And this idea is, is, is one of the things that I love the most about economics and, and why I think it, it often does a better job explaining the world around us than some of the other social sciences. Many of these other fields rely on, on polling or direct questioning to get a sense of where people's heads at are, or where people's heads are at in society. Economics typically ignores that because well, people tend to lie to pollsters based on I don't know, what they think the pollster wants to hear. And, and instead, economists look at where and, and what people are spending their money on. Because if you want to know what a person's real priorities are, look at what they're willing to part with their money for. So... Well, any guy could easily lie about his intentions at no cost to himself. A gift requires a financial investment, which should exclude most guys who aren't serious. Obviously, in, in real life, there are guys who will go down the road of signaling more serious intentions than they actually have, but in principle, it would serve as a, a way to generally distinguish intentions. Now, the fun question. If our guy wants to convey his seriousness in pursuing a relationship with our girl and wants to do it with maximum precision to, you know, just how serious he is, while at the same time ensuring that our girl gets exactly the gift that she wants, then why doesn't he just give her cash? I'll let the thought of anyone trying to start a relationship by giving the person that they're interested in a, a wad of bills sink in for a second. That's ridiculous, right? We all know that something like that would be seen as hugely insulting and, and extremely weird. Uh, even economists know that. But what we can't help but bump on here, again, is... That if we're all rational consumers, we should want efficiency in all things. It's why we want products for the, of the best possible quality at the lowest possible price for the sake of efficiency. Well, per that idea, cash would be the most efficient gift. Because there's no chance that our guy buys a gift that the girl doesn't like. No chance of buying a fine bottle of wine for a girl who just happens to be a recovering alcoholic or chocolates for a diabetic or just a gift that's, you know, not to her tastes. Cash would allow our guy to perfectly quantify how serious he is in real dollars and ensure that our girl can get whatever she may want most at the time. Perfect, right? Except again, we all know that it isn't perfect. It's just weird. And again, economists aren't saying that it shouldn't be weird. What they want to know is why exactly is it weird? What part of human psychology makes it weird? And why do we all seem to agree on that? 
And this idea doesn't just apply to gifts of courtship. It applies to most gift-giving scenarios. Except, of course, it doesn't apply to all gift-giving scenarios, but we'll get into that later. For now, just the general notion that social rules for gift-giving are not only largely inefficient, but also somewhat arbitrarily inconsistent is what's important. Beyond courtship and, and, and into broader gift-giving, we could say that gifts exist in two parts. They signify the nature of the relationship between the giver and the recipient, which is usually a function of the choice of gift. And they signal intentions for the future, which is usually a function of the cost of the gift. Sounds pretty good. But where that breaks down is that there is no confusion about the familial relationship between me and my mom. And there's nothing to signal about future intentions as I will continue to be her son uh, onto, you know, infinity into the future. Yet, I got my mom several gifts this year for Christmas. If the economic definition of gift giving is, well, definitive, then why would I do that? Again, we run into a, a societal truth that we all know, but it's a truth that's hard to convert into an economic equation that we can apply broadly. If I told you that I didn't get my mom a Christmas present because, well, I had nothing to signal to her, you'd think I was a cruel bastard. And you'd be right. Where society, there, where uh, sociology comes in handy here is by synthesizing the symbol idea with the signal idea. Think of gifts as a societal construct similar to language. It's important that any society has a method to communicate with each other. And gifts are just a subset of language, or, or rather, social language. Uh, a gift, simply by its presence, can convey meaning. A perfect example being um, the, the tradition of a new father giving out cigars. If you're in a hospital and see a guy giving out cigars, you're probably going to immediately and correctly assume that he's a new father. Uh, what's also interesting about this convention is that it's still universal, despite the massive reduction over time in the number of people who actually smoke. The times have changed, but the convention hasn't, because its value isn't in the smoking of a cigar, but in efficiently conveying an idea. The value is almost entirely in the symbolic signal that it sends. But this starts to fall apart when we're talking about, say, gift exchange between people in uh, what, you, what you could call a mature relationship. Basically, people you've known for a long time, people you're very close to. Using myself as an example, I got engaged to uh, my girlfriend Mandy this year. And in the lead up to, to it, while we were dating, gifts were given, not just at holidays and anniversaries, but at other times as signals of my seriousness uh, in the relationship. But 
This November, I dropped the ultimate signal by giving her an engagement ring. After that, I think it's safe to say that I had clearly and successfully signaled my intentions towards the relationship. Now, we've already covered the fact that, of course, I'm going to get her gifts. And, of course, this Christmas, I got her several gifts. What's interesting is, with nothing left to signal, what now becomes my metric for figuring out what gift to give? Here, Cameron makes a pretty good suggestion. And, and it's one that I actually base most of my gift giving to friends and family on. He proposes the idea that the ideal gift in mature relationships is one that the person likes, but did not realize that they liked. And I think this is a fantastic metric to go off of. I actually try to apply it across most, if not all, of my gift giving, because there's just something really special about getting someone something that they wanted or needed, but didn't know existed until the moment they opened it. Uh, the trick with this idea, of course, is you run the risk of being wrong. <laughs> this should be somewhat less likely in a mature enough relationship, because by that point you should know what the person's tastes are, but, but the risk is still there. I mean, a good example is, is a number of years ago I got some very close friends of mine a, a hot air balloon ride as a wedding present, and only after I had I'd given the certificate to them uh, did I, I have the somewhat disturbing thought of, huh, I really hope neither of them is deathly afraid of heights. Uh, as it turned out, they weren't. They were fine. But even, even with people I knew that closely, the risk was still there. Uh, another quirk to... This gift-giving dynamic is the social convention that if you're close with a person that you're giving the gift to, you can't just ask them what they want for an upcoming holiday. Asking them would, it would be a signal that you think of them as more of a casual friend than a close one. Once any relationship gets to a certain point, you have to use your knowledge of that person to guess at a good gift, thus running the risk of guessing wrong. Uh, you know, again, uh, conversely, if a casual friend came up to you and said, hey, you want to exchange gifts and, and, and just asked you what you wanted, you wouldn't be offended. But if a long-time close friend did the same thing, you know, you'd probably be a little insulted by that. Of course, this doesn't imply universally. I, I personally know several people who, just due to the conventions of, of their their family and, and the, the gift-giving dynamic within it, uh, will ask their closest friends, their closest relatives, uh, what they want, and then simply get that for them. It's just the way they've always done it. Uh, it really just kind of depends on what you're used to. Camera sums up the, uh, this with the, the often used truism of it's the thought that counts. But I think while most people use that phrase to say that 
The correctness of the gift doesn't matter, just the fact that the person thought to get any gift is what matters. That's not what Kammerer is saying when, when he uses the same phrase. What, what Kammerer means is, uh, to say is that the thought you put into getting the right gift is what's important in conventional gift giving. There's also an element of price that comes into play. Basically, a gift should be scaled in economic value to the emotional value of the relationship. And that sounds kind of cold <laughs> and detached, but uh, it does make sense. I, I think this holds pretty true for things like Christmas presents. This year, by scale, I spent much more on my new fiancé than I did on casual friends just in the same way that you or anybody would undoubtedly spend more on gifts for your own children than you would for, say, a niece and nephew, oh, and, and more on your niece and nephew than you might on a gift for a friend's kid. Now, since we're talking about holidays, it's important to point out that, that holidays are, are pretty useful to gift-giving because they create a commonly agreed-on focal point for the exchange of gifts. Rather than leaving it up to people to determine on their own to give a gift or send a signal or, you know, not, a holiday offers a date agreed on across society to be a, a singular opportunity where you can send that signal or not. Uh, thus sending an entirely different signal altogether. But of course, holidays aren't the only times we give gifts. Uh, one outlier that Cameron brings up that I, I just think is interesting is gifts given to, to close friends or family after you come back from traveling. Anytime I've traveled abroad, I make sure to get gifts for people who are close to me. It was actually one of the few th uh, times that a, a gift is potentially actually more efficient than cash because at least in theory what you're buying during your exotic travels can't be bought back home so a cash gift of the equivalent value would not get the same result of course this is less relevant in the age of online retail where anything can be purchased online and shipped but it's still an important distinction now, while my travel gifts were always meant as a, a way of sharing uh, something exotic with my friends and family back home, uh, there is a more cynical way of looking at gifts like that. Instead of being a signal that, you know, while traveling, uh, you were thinking about the person and, and you wound up get, getting them a, a symbol or a signal that you are thinking of them you could look at at uh gifts you know uh gotten while traveling as as being signals to friends and family that you are more traveled than they are basically you're bringing back a reminder that you're off doing cooler things than they are uh you know just to rub it in their face uh, I'm sure that there are some people for whom that would apply, uh, but you know, I'd like to think that most travel gifts are meant in the in the right spirit. Um, 
then we get into generic gifts, and and this is one that I do take a bit of exception to what Cammer has to say about it. Uh, well, he points out that generic gifts are valuable as you know a gift that allows you to say that you gave a gift, uh, you know, without putting too much effort into the uh, into the thought of it. Some of the things he lists as generic gifts, I, I think depend largely on the attitude of the giver and and of the receiver. Uh, he lists uh, chocolates, candy, liquor, flowers, and jewelry as generic gifts. And, and granted, they can be. But those same categories can also be thoughtful and meaningful gifts. Camera points out that the, the great thing about generic gifts is that they can be scaled to quality, which as far as gift-giving goes, is a pretty efficient way to signal the nature of a relationship. Casual friend gets Johnny Walker Red Label. Uh, a very, very, very close friend gets Johnny Walker Blue Label. But regardless of price, I think that any of these generic gifts can be hugely, hugely meaningful. Getting flowers for somebody you care about isn't generic if you get the type of flower that they like the most even if it's not the most expensive you're you're getting a generic gift but it is specific to the person and and specific to their tastes and therefore conveys a huge amount of meaning i'd say that while these examples can can be considered generic they can also be meaningful depending on the level of thought you put into it I'll cop to buying generic gifts every Christmas. I'll buy a few uh, excess generic gifts to have on hand, just in case I happen to get together with someone unexpectedly. Uh, and those gifts are usually in one of Cammer's categories, but even then, I, I do try to get something that, while generic, is, is still unexpectedly good. This year, for example, I made a lot of hay... Uh, with uh, generic gifts from Hickory Farms. Uh, they're gift boxes. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Hickory Farms makes gift boxes with, you know, meats, cheeses, and crackers, uh, along with some sort of mustard or some such thing. They're really good generic gifts. Uh, however, for me, uh, they had a, a bit more meaning because, one... I discovered that their uh, Hickory Farms new turkey sausage was amazingly good. No, I am not being paid to advertise. I just really think that much of it. And two, anyone who knows me knows I personally love stuff from Hickory Farms. So it's a generic gift that I'd personally be thrilled to receive. And again, I'm not being paid by Hickory Farms to advertise, but if they wanted to, I'm all for it. I guess my issue with Cameron's term is that whether intentionally or not, it, by calling it generic, it, it, it seems to imply a level of apathy towards the gift that I, I don't think necessarily has to be there when giving one of those generic gifts. On the topic of generic gifts, though, if you have not seen the uh, Saturday Night Live sketch, I, th I think for me, maybe a year ago, uh, about the Christmas candle 
you absolutely should. It uh, may very well be the perfect description of a generic gift. So, we've got a loose, often contradictory thesis on gift giving, but there's still a few more stray thoughts that Cameron brings up that, that I think are worth noting. Uh, one is the question of, uh, especially when using a gift as a signal, why don't we leave the price tags on? I mean, we've agreed that we can't just give cash in most cases, but if you're trying to send a signal with a gift, wouldn't letting the person that you're giving the gift to know exactly how much they mean to you in dollars be beneficial towards that signal? Of course, it's just another social convention that doing something like that is considered really tacky, but I doubt any of us could say exactly why that is. The other curveball Cameron notes is that in some close relationships, mainly between uh, parents and children, gift giving tends to get more efficient over time. When we're kids, our parents will get us some of the things we ask for, but will also get us things we didn't ask for because they feel like they know our needs better than we do. You may not have asked for socks, but your parents know that you do actually need socks. As we get older, though, cash becomes more acceptable, if, if not desirable, as a gift. If five-year-old me had opened my Christmas presents from my parents to find $50 in cash, I probably wouldn't have known what to do with it. But when 18-year-old me got cash, I was thrilled. Cameron even notes that cash is a conventional wedding present from parents to their children. Perhaps he supposes being symbolic of the nature of the relationship changing, with the, the parents no longer being solely responsible for thoughtful gifts. Anyway, that, that's about all we can say about gifts, at least for this episode. Um, as usual, there's not really a rock-solid conclusion to be had here, aside from, well, economically speaking, gifts are weird. And... Maybe that's okay. Do hope that you all had a uh, good holiday and a happy new year. Again, next week we'll be starting with book one, chapter one of The Wealth of Nations, so buckle up for that. Uh, I'd like to, again, send special thanks to George Sacco, who composed the unlicensed song that I'm now using in my intro and outro. Uh, if you find it as catchy as I do, uh, you can check out his stuff on YouTube. Uh, I'd also like to thank all of you for listening. As always, be sure to take some time and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. As of right now, we finally got enough ratings on iTunes to provide an average, and we are sitting pretty. An average of five out of five stars. So thanks to everyone who took the time, and special thanks to any of those of you out there who didn't like the podcast and decided to keep it to yourself. Uh, to further motivate you to keep writing those reviews, I will read any that show up on the podcast. And today's is from Interweb Bully, uh, who says, 
Dave comes off as a likable, smart guy who can explain economic topics to anyone. The Federal Reserve episode is great for anyone looking to learn what American fiscal and monetary policy is really like. I think a few more episodes and he could really find a good groove, especially with a bit of post-production to speed things along and remove some dead air. Looking forward to more. Well, thanks, Interweb Bully, and I hope that over the last few episodes I've been able to live up to that review and improve a bit on the post-production side. I'm still learning this stuff, and I, but I do intend to continuously improve as I, as I pick up on it. Uh, don't forget to come join us on the Facebook group at OK, let me tell you why you're wrong, and comment on this episode or make suggestions for future episodes. Believe me, with my new commitment to an episode a week, I am more than happy to field any topics that you may want to suggest. Uh, with that, I'll see you next week. I've been Dave Yost, and this has been OK. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Okay.